A woman can walk miles without taking one single step forward. As a child born in a harem, I instinctively knew that to live is to open closed doors. To live is to look outside. To live is to step out. Life is trespassing. These lines have been written by Fatima Marnisi and I saw these lines in a book called The Brass Notebook by Devaki Jain. And I was instantly in love with the book. Hello and welcome, I'm Pooja Sarkar and you're listening to the podcast from the bookshelves of Forbes India. While we always reach out to authors who write books in the world of business, economics and finance, I really decided that this time I want to do something different. I wanted to pick up a book from a feminist, uh, not just because we need to talk about equality, but also the fact that during the pandemic, especially in the last nine months, a lot of women that I know have been forced out of workforce. Women feel guilty that they have to raise the child, they have to do the entire domestic chores, they have to work doubly harder because sometimes bosses don't really understand that the other person is working. We are spending more time. In fact, there was a report which said that people are working far more uh, because of work from home than they did ever before. And a lot of women are forced out of workforce. I know a lot of women who have been... There are multiple cases of domestic violence which is on the rise. And this is not just in India. It's everywhere. You name the economy and it is the case everywhere. So I thought it would be important to speak to someone to bring some shine and light and to let women know, you know, you don't have to feel guilty. It's all right. Pat your back. Go after that battle. And here it is. Uh, while Mrs. Jain is a Padma Bhushan awardee and she was born in a family where her father was divan to the princely states of Mysore and Kualia. I mean, I'm not taking away the fact that she was born in privilege, but... When you're born in 1930s, 35, I mean, you really um, cannot accomplish much unless you have fought the battle on your own. So this book has a lot of these stories. Uh, for example, her elder sister, when she gets her first menstrual cycle, uh, she's, you know, celebrated. But yet she's kept in this house. Uh, and Devaki was asked to accompany her elder sister and they were treated very, I mean, they were treated in a way which we have seen in the past. I'm not sure about others, but I have seen it in the past where you're not al- allowed to touch anything in the house. You just have to stay in your room, wash your own clothes, wash your own utensils. And then peop- and then women were married off very early, even before they were 18. She comes from that time and then, you know, it did not apply to her. So in a way, a lot of the stories in the book, obviously it's her own life story, but she has been a rebellion and she's, of course, one of the foremost names when it comes to economy. I mean, she's one of the most renowned economists and friends with the likes of Amartya Sen. In fact, Mr. Amart- Dr. Amartya Sen has uh, written the foreword of the book. Now, I'm going to discuss much more here, but I'm going to get into the conversation with her. Now, first and foremost, uh, I will, you know, uh, start with this question at this time. It is not in the book, of course, but in these times when the pandemic has forced women to move out of the workforce, uh, there has been increased number of domestic violence cases also that we are seeing. I mean, this book has been refreshing. Uh, I mean, 
could you tell the listeners a little about your life and your journey because your journey has been so phenomenal firstly you know i if you see part in some part of which chapter i forgotten i written how what you said is not really fair i think there have been a lot of people who have crossed this kind of journey you know broken barriers mm-hmm. <clears throat> challenged given structures as well as traditions you take kamla devi chatopadhyay for example she is my heroine she broke every norm and apart from the fact that she divorced one man she lived with another famous politician for many decades and lived openly you know it's a, and many of the women of that era had that kind of uh, struck courage and they didn't mind the gossip that was said about them so if you look at the stories of women out there coming out whether they were communists or gandhians they all were breaking the rules so i think i was not unique at all in talking bravely about what i did okay. so i just want to underline that that i was not unique i was <laughs> only one of that tribe <laughs> <laughs> okay uh, now i would like you to tell uh, tell the listeners about you know where were you born and which times are we talking about because uh, i don't want to open the conversation by letting them know what's there in the book so because your father has a massive role in your life and a lot of the center of the book is around him in the early uh, passages if you could tell our listeners about uh, your early journey in life um some of it is written but i'll only repeat it for you that is childhood as i said was happy because there was many of us there were seven of us children and uh, we were not bothered by anything but we didn't have we didn't have a plush life like you know we had no cycles or anything like that but we we were happy our parents were gave us a lot of freedom and my mother and aunt looked after us very well so the early life and then if you look open the book there's a picture of me with my cousins in those days girls did not go out to other people's homes to play and spend the evening but relatives came over or even to them so i have a batch of four of us who are very close cousins so right up to college time it was with these people that one played when one was not studying or, not, or eating or sleeping so that was the early life and as i was as i written it was not restrictive it was restrictive in the sense you couldn't go to the compound you couldn't go to movies on your own but there was fun in the sense that your relatives your cousins came there were festivals when everybody came together but it was segregated in the sense that we didn't do what my brothers could do but soon that went away and we were out with our male cousins and so on so i don't know whether we were unique in that particular we meaning my family but i think my family was somewhat different my father was a modern civil servant my mother just flew out of her orthodoxy and became a wonderful modern woman so i don't think we can locate my freedom loving nature in any kind of bind it was part of the atmosphere of our household uh in your book you've said you know that indian men are usually like tiger but when it comes to their mothers or sisters they become like lamb 
and uh, there was a story of how you which where you've written that your mother really fought with everyone to send you and your sisters to a convent school because uh, she did not want you all to be awkward when trying to be uh, trying to uh, galvanize in the society can you tell us more stories from that period about your mother because in a lot because there are some very striking stories or inspiring stories of your mother in your book yes i know she was i think i mean or many of us all over the world absolutely admire worship our mothers i find now that mothers are the big thing i mean whether it is i want men you know that famous uh, chess player from india everybody says it's our mother who took us there even virat kohli says that so i think <laughs> mothers are really currency of the kind that you don't get anywhere else um so i wouldn't put my mother as a only one person she's one of a tribe of mothers who have been very gentle and open and allowed their children to flower male and female my mother why i found it very exciting was though she was married so young though she had seven children by the time she was 33 there are photographs that i have where she is playing tennis with a 9 year old sari when she was about 35 and all her reproductive work was over so there was a there was a certain um, what shall i say zest in her body i think it just born with zest that she took every possible challenge or modernity that my father experienced with the same uh what shall i say zest courage adaptation And, and one of the things i found beautiful about her was that when she admitted us to the convent school which was roman catholic and much disapproved by the boers in our family that we were getting polluted by going to christian schools she just came to the school and just to make the nuns feel that her precious children were to be looked after she went to the chapel in the mysore in my soul in the good shepherd convent you can imagine this was in the 1940 late 40s and knelt in front of the christ and did the name of the father and the son the holy ghost just like the nuns did i mean i can see it in front of my eyes and i thought what kind of liberated woman she must have been to have done that as and the nuns were thrilled they just couldn't believe that a brahmin woman a wife of a civil servant would come and kneel in in the chapel i wish we had pictures of that i wish she was here to hear me say that because we don't didn't we didn't note down these momentous amazing breakthroughs that she did because she was also a rather quiet dominated householder okay now getting back to the part you know first you were supposed to go with the uh, to south america for your dancing trip which did not really happen at that time uh then you later went on to study in england could you talk about your journey how you left india uh and where you studied and your early days yes you know it was a, i must confess that there was no bravery in that you know this, this is not a book about a brave woman walking across the fire nothing like that it was a my father was a, a, on the board of the air india the first board you know what you call the governing body when jrd tata set it up mm-hmm. and the board members had a privilege that every year there would be one board meeting in london or geneva 
and the privilege was that they could take one person free. So the natural choice was my mother. So several times he took my mother. Mind you, this was every year. Mm -hmm. So next he took my aunt, who was my mother's unmarried sister. Mm -hmm. Then he took uh, uh, my eldest sister. Then he took me. Then he took my aunt. So he put us on a roster <laughs> that everybody got a chance to go to London with him. And he would go to London and Geneva and Rome. These were the three places the Air India board went to. So it was a free ride we got, and a free boarding and lodging. But I did that, what I have written there, that I think why that I did that, I don't know. I think I had gumption. And uh, mind you, this was when I was 19 or 20. And he was very um, flexible, basically. All you need when you want to free yourself is to be to affirm that freedom. Mm -hmm. You say, oh, why did he, she, he allow her to do it or not me? Well, the other sister didn't say that. So what you do is you affirm, you say, I asked him, can I stay for another 10 days after you leave me? And that began my liberatory journey. And neither he nor I knew that where it would lead to. But um, that was how it all happened. That The ticket was Air India and the complimentary flight that they gave board members. And I just got an extra 10 days from him. And then from there I flew out. And that flying out again is if you just make an effort, you know, you can always open doors. Like Fatima Marnisi says, you just have to step out. So the doors will open if you try to step out. So I then went to all these various seminars, journeys, joined the college. That was not on an agenda. It was done because I was stepping out. But in your early days, did you really want to become an economist? I wanted to understand that. Or how did you decide, this is where I want to head now? Not at all. I mean, I, as I've written also, that when I was about 10, 12 or 13, when people begin to ask, what do you want to do? Initially, I wanted to be a surgeon and a, what you call a brain surgeon. I don't know why. I've never understood. I've written then. I don't know why. But then I wanted to be a professional dancer because once I started learning dancing, I just loved it, Bharatanatyam. I gorged myself watching Shanta Rao, who was at that time the Bangalore's leading dancer. And if I still, if you ask me even now, do I regret that I became an academic and not a dancer? Yes. <laughs> I would have liked to be a Bharatanatyam dancer and then I would have liked to be a film star <laughs> in this country. Because, you know, Vaijanti Bala is the second cousin, can you imagine? And really? so... Yes, my father's cousin's daughter. Oh. So she was, well, she was a role model for me. I also, she was my class follower in, in Chennai. We both were in the same class. Of course, she went another journey. But dancing and acting were really what I would have liked to do once I grew out of the passion for being a surgeon. But life didn't allow that because those era was not only conventional. You didn't have the doors which you could throw open to do those things. So I landed up as an academic, not voluntarily, but by compulsion or by, by circumstance. But there's one thing I wanted to understand because you've extensively researched upon the impact of poverty on women. What have been your takeaways? And also in these times when we are seeing this entire rise in inequality uh, across us, are we really failing women in the poor strata with our policies? Policies which 
are relevant to, let us say, the citizens of a country are of many subjects and many areas. There could be legal law, there's economics, there's politics, and then within that there is health, education, employment. So it's difficult to make a generalization that the policies are failing or not failing. I think India has done quite leap forward in looking at reproductive health, maternity, things. So I hear from my associates. I'm not an expert on that. In economics, I think we have not done too well. We have not understood what many of us have, many of us have been saying since 1980, that uh, women are working in in greater numbers than the system counts them. And this has to be not only recognized, but then the recognition should add also to, to bringing them under the legal framework of work so that they get all the workers. But this hasn't happened, though it is not for lack of our fighting for it. I started with data, but people have then, like Ila Bhatt has done organizing them and other people are showing that there's a whole lot of work that they do, which is not remunerated. So I think we have tried, but we have not yet been able to succeed on two counts. One is to understand that we cannot, women, understanding, yes, amongst the feminists, we understand it. But they have not understood, the state and society has not understood that these are the warriors of economic transformation, of economic growth, and they should be given much greater support, identity, and then support. And the other thing they have not recognized is the fact that they're often invisibilized. So mm -hmm. these are things that we are trying very hard. I mean, the feminist economists are doing a very lot of good work. And many groups are organizing women as workers, whether it's domestic workers, as sex workers, as insurance workers, as anganwadi workers. These, are, these organized brings collective power to push for their rights, to put for better benefits. True. But there's a portion in your book where you somewhere mentioned that you were really irritated of, with handling your work with children, so much of house chores. Uh, and you had some very interesting conversations in there. Is there anything that you would like to tell listeners on how to juggle uh, everything together? Yeah, it's not a story. It's actually the lived pain of uh, most women. And of course, it, it gets into the which let's say into the, under the skin of the men also. Even today that battle is going on of women who say, why should we be the only ones who do housework and childcare, share it? Even today, even when the uh, COVID came, then there's even more of that discussion that because men and women stayed at home. And so they say, oh, men were very frustrated that they had to do some household chores. So this is an old, issue of uh, roles and I think we've been trying very hard to ensure two things recognize that role so if that role can't be budged and got into men doing it then give enough support to women that someone a structure institutional structure does the caring and in Scandinavia and some of these wealthy countries it's fantastic and wonderful support systems of looking after children in creches or pre-nursery nurseries. It's healthy, it's, it's good for the children to socialize. So then the woman doesn't feel burdened. For example, I, when I was at St. Anne's College, every morning at 7.30, parents would come and leave, parents of uh, 
children whose parents were working in St. Anne's as fellows, teachers, cleaners, live in the creche come nursery. And the children were so happy playing there. At 12, 12.30, the parents would come and pick them up. So that's possible that you don't necessarily have to have the man do it. You have a society do it, state do it, institution do it. In the sense that might work, because if you say at every point that you want the man to do and get out of the house, you may lose your child also because he may not pay the kind of attention. There's a lot of good discussion on this if you want to know in uh, Sweden and Finland. You know, in Finland and Sweden, as you know, they did paternity leave. But when I interviewed some of them, including the minister who, what shall I say, got that law through, say about 15 years ago, mm -hmm. she said it's not working. When the men get paternity leave, they don't bother. And instead, they like to take that leave and do reindeer hunting because it was not something that they enjoyed. So I think the better thing is for the state to provide those services. And if the, for, for everyone, from a landless woman laborer mm -hmm. to a scientist, um, and this should be one of the biggest, what shall I say, public expenditures that we can do. Unfortunately, there are many crashes, but many of us, including I, were scared to leave our baby there because if you get an infection and it spreads, then you're done. So it has to be clean. It has to be without infection. The food should be good. So that is very expensive. But that's something that the state should provide if we want more women from the less privileged classes who can't afford full-time domestic workers to join the labor force. What are the most, if you have to tell the listeners, what are the key takeaways from the book? You know, I did not think of it. I mean, people are asking me, who are you addressing? Why were you saying what you said? Mm -hmm. I, I have to confess, it was, I just tumbled into it. I took some portions, I changed some. It was, a, it was a big challenge to know how to write your story. And if I may be honest with you, without showing off. Mm -hmm. So common to say I did well, I broke all these rules. And I've said that also, I am showing off. But the showing off, I hope, is more muted than in many other memoirs. It's a hard thing to do. You're asked to talk about yourself. And you're supposed to talk about yourself, but not show off. So some of it comes out like that. That is, you see, I broke my family's tradition and went off to Oxford. That is, in a way, showing off. But it's also true that that's part of my story. So, so, you know, these authors and writers have a lot of uh, reflection to do before they decide how they'll come, come out with their, their story. Um, politicians, I mean, I often think of Shashi Tharoor, Margaret Alva, they've all written their memoirs. They have, I think, more, spent more time on talking of their professional trajectory, you know, how they came into politics, what they did. That's a, a line that is easier in my view, if you're, or somebody who's written about the life of, of a politician or the life of a dancer. There's a professional growth there, which is a line which you can follow. I did that and I went to that school. Then. But in my case, I didn't have any particular um, line like that. So, 
I stumbled onto it. Initially, I'd written so much more on my mother, mm -hmm. but the editors cut off that. Then I'd written much more on the, um, you know, the sexual um, struggles of girls and the enormous amount of vulnerability they have from family members to the outside world. Mm -hmm. But that also, I think, only 30% of what I wrote was there. So I could have grumbled, but then, you know, when you have a good publisher like I had and a brilliant editor like I had with Renuka Chatterjee and the publisher Speaking Tiger, yeah. I felt that I, had, I should not do that. They were, they were my gurus. And other friends of mine, and I won't name them because they're all the big shots of the world, <laughs> had told me that editors have to be listened to, that an editor can transform a book so don't go quarreling with editors. I didn't quarrel, but they did cut out a lot. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time today.